This podcast is brought to you by Prolongevity, the award-winning eight-week program that can transform the lives of people with prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, and many other lifestyle-related illnesses. Founded by Graham Phillips, the pharmacist who gave up drugs. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Prolongevity podcast and I am absolutely delighted today to welcome um, someone who I follow for a very long time and feel like, you know, we've only just met face to face today on on a Zoom, but I feel like I've known him forever, Gary Fetke, who's an Australian surgeon who has had a very interesting journey that embraces everything from surgical amputation of uh, limbs in people with out-of-control diabetes to being taken apart by the health system to uh, everything from the Seventh-day Adventist to the cereal industry and medical education. And in fact, there are so many different themes that we could pick up today. There's no way we can do justice to all of it. So we're going to try and do a little uh, little taster um, and just to see where we end up. So Gary, welcome and thanks so much for, for joining us. Well, it's good to catch up, Graham. I've been following you on Twitter, and I think there's been a few text messages and tweets between us over the years, and, and emails, and, and here we are. So it's, you know, it's good to, good to see you. I mean, neither of us are particularly pretty, so I'm, you know, I'm really sorry to the audience. Can we just go to audio? <laughs> well, they always say I've got a great face for radio, you know. Um, and I kind of wanted to start with your role as a surgeon, because. People talk about, I've got a little bit of diabetes. And I don't, because it's become almost the norm to be diabetic or pre-diabetic, I don't think people take it seriously enough until something goes horribly wrong. Um, And it's the point that either Cummings often makes around cardiovascular disease that for a lot of people, the first time they know they've got a cardiovascular problem is they have a heart attack. And the problem with that is on a third of occasions, they don't survive it. So it's kind of a bit late. Well, they've you, actually been symptomatic well and truly before that. They just probably didn't recognise the exactly. symptoms. And the system isn't making people aware of those. Exactly. The system completely agree with you. So perhaps if we could talk first about your role as a surgeon and how diabetes has played into that and what conclusions you've drawn. <clears throat> diabetes as a major part of my clinical practice because it didn't exist there 30 years ago. And it was, you know, it was, <clears throat> it was you know, a certain number of people and they were generally pretty unhealthy. And by the time you've got diabetic complications in orthopaedics, then that's pretty pretty significant. And we're talking about, <clears throat> and in that time frame, we're talking about peripheral vascular disease, poorly controlled ulcers, toes which are starting to rot and, then, you know, and ultimately end up with diabetic foot ulceration and then amputation. Then we were also looking at wound healing problems in general associated with major surgery, particularly lower limb surgery, and again, it comes down to microcirculation. So it's always been on the radar, but my practice in northern Tasmania over 30 years kept on drifting down to looking after more and more patients with diabetic foot complications, mainly because most people, most surgeons, just not interested. If you go to a foot and ankle orthopedic meeting, which is really boring anyway, but you'll have go for three or four days, and ninety five percent of the operations and the procedures and the conditions that are discussed are not diabetic. Yeah, uh, literally, you know, you know, this soreness, this problem, this arthritis, this management, these intricate operations. 
Whereas when I came to my public hospital work, 95% of my foot and ankle practice, and which became a you know, major portion of, of my clinics on a Friday, um, because just with diabetic foot problems, because nobody else would look after them. We didn't have a major vascular service. I was you know, giving vascular opinions. I was looking after the foot problems. There were ulcers. We had lots of contact casts on. We had try, we'd try and conservative management. Mm. And I was losing it. You know, I was lo- I was losing the battle. My patients were losing the battle. Um, you know, and it, not surprisingly, my clinic ended up being called Fetke's Effed Up Fructose Free Fungating Foot Folly Fridays. Takes a little yeah. while to roll off it. Yeah, I think that's fabulous. Yeah, but it, it used yeah. to be, and I, you know, I'd, I'd get medical students in there, and I'd say, look, <clears throat> if you turn up to my clinic on a Friday, I'll guarantee that you'll pass medicine. Which was, you know, and not because I'm actually a great teacher. It's just if you're a medical student and you turn up to a, a, a clinic on a Friday afternoon when you can nick off early, and you come along and see all these horrible problems, then I'd be scratching my head. Not just diabetes, but my my clinic was, you know, whenever there wasn't a problem, you know, what do you do with a patient? They ended up in my clinic, and um, a few years ago, quite proudly, my registrars actually gave me a toilet brush painted gold. <laughs> <laughs> a golden toilet brush because in my clinic I got to clean up all the, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so I've, I've actually had that for the last few years sitting directly behind my patients. So I'm, I'm seeing them and they're sitting facing me but directly behind them is a golden toilet brush. And when they do have one of those diabolical problems which are you know, unsolvable or need a bit of lateral thinking, I, I say turn around because you're actually one of those toilet brushes. You know, you're, you're actually you're here because nobody else knows what to do with you. Would you consider this? Yeah. Now that, that I mean, I'm quite happy that I was, I'm a problem-solving surgeon mm. and thinking outside of the box. But the diabetes was, you know, there was a, a point in time when one day I had a patient, nice guy. I'd amputated one leg. We we're looking at amputating the other leg. We got him in hospital, out of control diabetes. And I went and caught up with him at a meal time, and he's eating ice cream. I said, hang on, what are you eating ice cream for? And he said, oh, I, I like ice cream. I said, well, it's no good for your blood glucose control. Yeah. And he said, no, no, I, I'm allowed to have it in hospital. And then I started looking into it and I was starting to look at the perils and problems of sugar in a wider extent rather than just surgery. And then I started realising that this is the example we're setting in hospitals, 100%. not just to people with diabetes but for the wider community. Yeah. It's supposed to be pillars of health, you know, as a hospital and they're just – you know, the slums of, of, you know, of the worst possible food that you can possibly supply to people, both in protein content, carbohydrate, glucose control, micronutrients, the whole works, just a total dope. But, that, that, but the hospital, in their defence, were actually following the National Hospital Food Guidelines. Yeah. And when I started challenging it, they said, look, you're going to have to take on the hospital food guidelines. You know, you're going to have to change them. I said, well, I'm just an orthopaedic surgeon in Tasmania, but I'll give it a crack. <laughs> As you do. And, and I was yeah. given the opportunity to speak to the national body, the National Conference of the Hospital Food. You wouldn't be surprised, but the Hospital Food Nursing Home has, <clears throat> has a national body. They meet once a year. And I got to speak and do a plenary talk to their audience, which was pretty high profile. My second slide, and I'll come back to it, but my second slide was hospital food is crap and it's killing my patients. Absolutely. You know, let's get their attention. Mm. 
And because if you're setting a poor example of food, particularly can be recommending people to have high-dose carbohydrate and sugars in hospital and no wonder their blood glucose is out of control. And it doesn't kill them directly, but over time it sets a poor example. One of the times I was reported to the medical board and investigated, you know, I was reported three times by effectively the cereal and the processed food industry, you know, by and their accomplices. But one of them I'd, I'd been in a... Uh, uh, charged for want of a better term of inappropriately reversing someone's diabetes and I'd made a claim that hospital food was killing my patients this crap and it's killing my patients so they'd taken my slide that I'd given in a public talk they then actually wrote to the hospital to find out how many of my patients had directly died from hospital food in so this is the medical board. They're going to yeah. the nth degree. The hospital said, we've gone through the records. None of Dr. Fetke's patients have died from hospital food, so he's exaggerating. I said, it's a figure of effing speech, you know. I mean, Unbelievable. Yeah. But the fact is we've got a system in place that's that draconian. It chases things down. You're guilty until proven otherwise. I'm sorry. In medical, the medical investigatory system here in Australia is that you are guilty until proven innocent. And I, you know, and I've now been through this process myself a few times. I'm supporting people yeah. on a daily and weekly basis who are going through the same process. It's it's terrible. No, so you, it's def- right. created defensive medicine. We have the same in the UK. And I was reading, as you, as you know, I'm, I'm a pharmacist. My partner's a GP, or I don't know whether you call them a GP in Oz or a family physician. Yeah, but I, um, I often nice read. People, like, call them nice people. They're nice people. Yeah. Um, the number of um, GPs and other medical doctors who've committed suicide during the investigatory period, you know. So, yeah, the system has... The if you're under investigation, you have... Was it, if, yeah. 14, 14 times, I think, the suicide rate in comparison with the general population. Well, it's interesting because your story about hospital food, um, <laughs> got a little anecdote of my own. My father's also a pharmacist. We're a bit of a pharmacy family. My son's a pharmacist, so kind of sad group, really. And uh, <laughs> um, none of our children have gone into medicine. We're quite happy. We're very proud of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so my he's ninety. My dad now ninety. Yeah, um, morbidly obese, and. Has never he's he's got literally a brain the size of of, the, of a planet. I don't know if you. I'm sure you know the drug Imodium. Mm. That was his PhD. Okay. And you, I don't know if you remember the um, the drug Fortral. Oh yes. Yeah. Well, so I am that old. Right. So he did a lot of work uh, as a, he became a community pharmacist, but he was originally a pharmaceutical chemist and he did lots of research around uh, the morphine molecule and playing with the different bits of the molecule in order because, you know, morphine has all these different effects and you can, by playing with the molecule, you can modulate the module, molecule and get the painkilling activity, um, the anticholinergic activity, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, seriously bright guy but completely intellectual and has never moved. You know, no physical activity was ever something encouraged in our family because the only valuable thing was intellectual movement. So spent his life never moving and eating terrible food, but has made it to 90 and he's physically frail, but his brain is still the size of a planet. So as a result, he gets, um, we get a phone call from the hospital, the Royal Berkshire Hospital saying, your dad's in hospital, he's... um, may not make it 
So Karen and I jump in the car. We were at a dinner party. We drive down. It's, you know, it's about an hour's drive. We get there. And he's been tied up in a suit because the infections made him go completely do lally. And he's literally, I mean, unrecognisable as an adult. I want my mummy and things like that. Anyway, long story short, they pump him. It turned out to be a UTI. They pump him full of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. He starts to recover. And at one point, um, Karen said to me, I think your dad, because we were watching him, and she said, I think your dad's passed away. And I said, no, no, he's just got really severe sleep apnea. I mean, it's the most heroic sleep apnea you've ever seen. And he'll mm. literally stop breathing and then he'll go and come back to life, right? So here's a guy who's got sleep apnea. They didn't pick up on his sleep apnea, but they saved his life. So I was there, he was recovering, and I went there a few days later, right? Well, hospitals are about crisis management. Exactly. Sort, sort out the big problem, get him out the door. Yeah. So he's there a few days. Remember, forgetting that all the other stuff is the one which he's going to bring them back again. 100%. So they then move him to a rehab ward. And as I say, I'm really grateful because they saved his life. So I'm there on a Sunday, right? And they bring him his food. Um, I think there's a plate of white sandwiches with white bread, sweet tea and biscuits. There's a sort of thin soup with a certain amount of vegetables in it. Then ice cream. And I think, you know, I just worked it out. There was like, it was just sugar, 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 sugar and sugar. And almost no nutrition. And here's a guy who's morbidly obese, right? And I thought, well, if he wasn't diabetic when he came into hospital, he sure as hell will be. So I emailed, I, I, you know. I've had some patients, you know, right on that, that term there, people have gone low carb with their diabetes management who have told me that when they're at home, they don't have diabetes and when they're in hospital, they do. Yeah. Purely based on what food they're served. Yeah. So I, said, can I go? Can I go home so I don't have diabetes again? I said, of course you can go home. 100%. So I emailed the ward and said, what are you doing? And they said, what's the problem? And I said, well, you've got a morbidly obese guy and you're feeding him sugar. Have you got shares in type 2 diabetes? And they said, well, we're just following the hospital guidelines. And um, as far as we're concerned, there's, there's no problem with your father's nutrition because he's not underweight. <laughs> but, but, I mean... I, I can't. The figure off the top of my head's not there, but it, it, it's in the ballpark of 60, 50, 60 percent of people who are obese are actually yep. malnourished, undernourished. Absolutely. And and seventy five, eighty percent of people who actually go to hospital are actually malnourished. It doesn't matter about their weight. Yeah. And that's a huge thing about you know what you're talking about. What I'm talking about is that with people eating a nutrient poor energy-dense diet over a long period of time means they, the body, they want it, they want the nutrients, so it's not there. So they'll go and eat a second pizza because the first pizza didn't have it. Because and I think you're absolutely right. I don't think people realise is that the body's got all sorts of nutrient-sensing mechanisms, <coughs> and the mechanism will only be satiated when it's got enough of the nutrients. So the example I always give is if you've got half the micronutrient, I mean, it's a theoretical case, but if you've got food that's got twice as much calories and half as much nutrition, you want to keep on eating and eating and eating until you get the nutrition. Well, of course, if it's not there, you will never be satiated and all the normal satiety mechanisms are bypassed. Hmm. I mean, it, 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 you and I get it, you know, and more and more people do get it. But the fact is we've got these systems entrenched yeah. that don't want to actually admit that they got it wrong. I mean, if, you, if the hospital has to admit that the hospital food is making the people sicker, then everyone's, everyone's worried about the legalities and being sued and that sort of thing. 
And so, you know, I've been battling this system for, you know, 12 years now in, at, at multiple levels, and, we, and we, we still are, and there's some projects that we've still got going at this point in time and, and, and some exciting new stuff. But it's trying to work out where you put that energy. So what's really critical, and that's what you, you're doing, but is that the individual can make the decision about what they want to do with their health, their nutrition, and their life. They can make that decision today. That's an incredibly empowering moment for people if they want to embrace it. And the trouble is picking out is our noise, you know, is what I'm talking about more relevant than someone else's because there's a whole lot of disinformation out there. I call it disinformation. It's deliberate misinformation because we've got a you know, food industry and a sickness industry that needs to be maintained. And, you know, Therefore, you know, I should declare my conflicts of interest. I've got, I, I'm not being paid, okay? <laughs> um, and last year I was I'm been asked to be a, a meat, a red meat ambassador to the meat and livestock industry here in, in Australia. I've not received a cent for that recognition, okay? So, I, I, yeah, it is it. But, they, you know, they, it's, I'm, and I'm not selling a book. I'm not. I'm not promoting anything. I, you know, I've been in books and I've been in you know, <clears throat> you know some movies and whatever. But I don't make money from this. This is, this is all. This has done is cost Belinda and myself an enormous amount of time, effort, anxiety, stress. <clears throat> yeah, and and money. I mean, it's cost us a retirement fund. You know, if anybody wants to throw us a retirement fund, it'll be nice. You know, no, no orthopedic surgeon ever has gone starving, by the way, and certainly. No. My financial advice to everyone, you know, we're just a couple of state school kids, but if you stay married to each other, you'll, you'll be fine. <laughs> so um, let me just complete my dad's story. So I emailed right. the ward and they put the, and the, nutri- and the dietitian or nutritionist, whoever was advised the ward said, as far as we're concerned, there's no problem. Um, do you want to speak to the, cons- the ward consultant? So I emailed the ward consultant. He said, well, I'm the consultant to the ward, but I have absolutely no interest or control in any of the nutrition. I went round in circles for a while. And in the end, they said, do you want to make a formal complaint? So I thought they, they provided fantastic care for my dad in many ways, saved his life. I really don't want to go down the route of making a formal complaint and tying everyone up in red tape and unpleasantness. And I left it. Uh, but, you know... I, I, it's the same. You go to all these professional meetings, you know, in the health system, and you've got GPs and consultants and whatever. And what do they feed? You know, you go there halfway through, you get, you know, um, a jam, you know, um, chocolate croissant, orange juice, and I stand up and say, "Have we all got shares in type two diabetes?" It's it's madness. It really is. Well, just well, kind of sorry to interrupt. Just circle back because I interrupted you when we were talking about your your surgical role. Because I want people to understand what, you know, because you've seen it up close and personal and many, you know, many times and had to deal with this. What does it do to the body out of control diabetes? And, you know, what kind of extremes do you have to go to? I think I think the NHS annually removes 40 in, in the UK, removes 40,000 limbs a year due to out of control diabetes. So what's can you describe that for us? Once you've... Once you... You know, your uh, <clears throat> your life expectancy after an amputation is very poor it's in the vicinity of less than five years on average, and it's 
because once you lose a limb, it's not just a mobility issue, it's a microvascular issue. And one of the things I talk about in my inflammation talks is that this affects every end blood vessel. Yeah. So it affects every tissue in the body. Um, my recent carb talk, which I thought would be more controversial, the carbohydrate, the dose is the poison, I actually made an academic scientific argument that the toxic dose of sugar, glucose, is four grams or one teaspoon. And I haven't been argued down. I mean, I, the first time I gave it was to 300, 350 doctors. And I thought, okay, let come at me and tell me <laughs> where I'm wrong. Yeah. But nobody did. I said, okay. because So therefore, the trouble is when you ingest glucose, it has it – just, and this is the person who doesn't have diabetes. This is just all of us. If you ingest glucose, it has multiple effects. But a reasonable dose, and we're talking about 30, 40 grams, which is, you know, um, you know four slices of bread or a bowl of pasta or rice, you know, um, you know what most people are tucking into with an evening meal, yeah. that will have an immediate damaging effect on the glycocalyx, which is the lining of every blood vessel, every artery in the body. Now, the glycocalyx is so critically important because it actually allows our blood vessels to flow for the red blood cells to go through and supply oxygen to the tissues. And when you damage that tissue, that glycocalyx, it takes hours for it to come back. So one meal will damage the glycocalyx immediately. And those people who've got diabetes, that their glycocalyx thickness is one-third to half of the normal population at the best of times. Then they have more diabetes, more glucose, and then it just continues the compounding effect. So therefore, just on glucose and one meal, it will create a sluggish blood flow in the blood vessels and the, at the end point, which is, you know, I, I call it like a garden or a vegetable garden, what's at the end of the vegetable garden getting the smallest amount of blood supply, you know, of water, is the one which is not going to do that well. It doesn't matter if how much nutrients you don't give it, give it how much fertiliser, how much weed killer, how much snail bait you put out. Unless you put the water supply on there, the thing's never going to come back. Yeah. So that's that's just the, the glycocalyx aspect. Well, then there's the uh, you know atherosclerosis aspect, and then there's more stasis issues where the blood supply is down, so therefore blood tends to clot more in the periphery, you know, out to the end of the body. Then you've got the insulin effect, which is the insulin when you eat carbohydrates, the pancreas produces this hormone called insulin, and insulin its primary aim is to store, take the glucose out of the bloodstream to take it out, it's because the body doesn't like glucose in the bloodstream, takes it out of the bloodstream and pushes it into the into the tissues and primarily stores it as fat. But two other things we've really found out about insulin in the last few years, and particularly the, and just two years ago, is insulin is not just a fat storage hormone, it's actually a growth hormone. So it's had a major stimulatory effect on things that grow. What's the biggest thing we worried about that's growing? It's called cancer. Absolutely. So therefore, when yeah. people say to me, look, you're telling me about you know, reverse cancer or get rid of cancer by going low-carb keto, I said, no, I'm saying that stop stimulating the cancer. Yeah. yeah and, and then maybe the body's got a fighting chance and the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy and surgery all have, are going to have better outcomes if you've got better control of it. But the thing which came out, which is particularly relevant to orthopaedics, is that the Chinese, actually two years ago, 2020, everyone blames the Chinese for bad sort of news and stuff, but they published some great material around insulin and inflammation, and particularly osteoarthritis, some really, really good stuff, 
showing that it was really a dose-related effect, osteoarthritis of the knee. The more insulin that you put that, this sort of called, I think called synoviocytes, it's the lining cells of the knee. Yeah. <clears throat> the more insulin, the more inflammation. Now, two things about that. The relevance of that is for my patients and it, everyone who has osteoarthritis, which is inflammation of joints, I recommend going low carb. It doesn't matter how advanced it is because you're going to reduce the inflammation. Yeah. A, you're going to reduce it because you might lose a little bit of body weight along the way, but you're actually going to have a direct anti-insulin effect on the inflamed joints. And I've had multiple, you know, hundreds of patients, but I, I can still remember from last year, eight patients in one week came back to see me where six to eight weeks earlier I said, you've got bare bone in your knee. You're needing a knee replacement, but why don't you do this? Because, you know, just do this for me as we're mucking around planning surgery. Eight patients came back, bare bone arthritis and knee saying, I've got no pain. Yeah. Now, they virtually hadn't lost weight. A couple of them had lost a kilo here and there, but this was primarily um, a loss of the inflammation in their joints. And so, I, I, you know, obviously, when you see this stuff, you can't unsee it. You know, that's what I keep talking about. When you see, you can't, you can't ignore a patient who says, "Thanks, doc, I don't need an operation." But then there's those patients who didn't want to do it, and ultimately, not everyone can, you know, be you know, as enthusiastic as the next person. And so, some of those would stick with me, and we'd try and you know coax them around, or that others would go to see someone else, and someone else would do the surgery. But, and I'm fine with that because I'm not going to force this upon anyone. I'm just going to say that this is a reasonable option. It doesn't cost anything. Side effects are zero. The, cost, the financial cost is zero. I often say to people, look, they say, look, I can't afford to eat fresh food. And I say, well, you've got to, you know, there's no extra monetary cost in eating fresh food. There is a time cost. It co takes time to go mm. out and shop for fresh produce. I'll use Karen Zing's quote from New Zealand. I don't know if you know Karen, but yeah. em empty pantry, full fridge. Yeah. So, great, great message. So it, yeah. it is, you're going to have to have a full fridge. You're going to have to go to the shops. You're going to have to buy fresh, and then you're going to have to prepare the food. So it's not costly in money if you're buying fresh local seasonal food. It is costly in time. But I say to people, it's really simple. You've got a choice of spending that time preparing the food, cooking quality stuff, making that part of the family the celebration of eating, yeah. or you've got a choice of spending that time in my waiting room in 10 or 20 years' time and becoming what I call a medical tourist, you know, like just yeah. moving from, you know, there's so many people who, you know, so many elderly people that their entire life, their calendar, their diary is just filled up with which medical appointment they're going to. I see that. My, my, both my parents are elderly now in their late 80s, early 90s, and particularly my mum, the whole, all of it, her week is dominated by medical appointments and medical visits. Um, look at this thing. She, she won't. But, you know, I'm, I kind of don't want to make the same mistakes. And most particularly, you know, my kids are now having kids. So our grandchildren, we're, Karen and I are trying to do everything we can to encourage our children not to not to feed the same things that we fed our kids because now we know the area of our ways in order to prevent them having to do make you know fight with all this at, at that end point we, we've apologized to our children for the way we brought them up um, but 
our, our grandchildren <laughs> are low are low carb kids. Yeah, and gone through low carb pregnancies. Beautiful, yeah. and and all I, I I can only say, you know, apart from being a proud grandparent and all that sort of thing, you know, all I can say that hasn't caused them any harm. I think they're perfectly fine. Actually, I think they're ahead on a whole lot of skinny things. Yeah, but. Anecdotally, it hasn't, and also you know, that's the wonderful thing about social media and lectures and giving talks is that you actually get this feedback from tens of thousands of people, and all of a sudden your n equals one study becomes n equals ten or n equals a hundred or n equals a thousand just yep. anecdotally. And I, I, I think we under that's been another project I was supposed to do. We were supposed to start that all at the beginning of COVID called the called the n equals one study, and try and collate tens of thousands of cases around the world. So I apologise to your listeners if you heard me talk about this two years ago. Yeah, I've, I've been somewhat distracted and <laughs> the world's more chaotic and it's on my to-do list along with, you know, you know, with the number of books that I need to read, which we talked about and laughed yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you when you move ahead with that, please, you know, I'd love to support that. Oh, uh, look, it, it's such a good idea. I, um, I suppose we need, you know, it's one of those things, you know, not that I need it, but we need seed money. We need seed energy, and we we had the energy, but COVID sort of came along and ripped the, the, the rug out from underneath us. There, um, yeah. Uh, give me time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. Well, we, that kind of segues into something else, actually, because you were talking about uh, neonates and so on, um, and I think it was your daughter's pregnancy and morning sickness that led you to look at the status of the fetus and the fact that we now understand uh, babies in utero and breastfed babies are in ketosis. Um, I'm, and, you, know, I'm, I'm just an orthopaedic surgeon, but, you know, I, I well, do you know sorts of court. <laughs> well, that's been an argument. Yeah. You know, and saying, oh, look, he's, you know, he's just a bone cruncher and he wouldn't, you know, doesn't know anything. But yeah. I do actually have a basic medical degree. I've got a Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Science. It, you know, our degrees are based in biochemistry, pathology, anatomy, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the basic stuff that we're, you know. So I, I don't have a problem with talking about this. And I'm an enthusiastic, you know, biochem, you know, biochemistry student, and I still, I think we're all students until the day we die. Yeah, you know, that, that's and. My father is, you know, similar age to yours, and um, he still does not go to bed any day until he's learnt something. You know, that's just he's been his motto in life, and, and yeah. so therefore, um, you know, if you can, if we can all learn something, then that's that's the goal. <clears throat> so anyway, um, Kate was um, unwell, unhappy, and you, you know the rules of that—that that your wife is only as happy as the unhappiest child. You know that theory. <laughs> so Belinda was unhappy. Kate was in you know horrible morning sickness again. So she had fair significant morning sickness with the first bub, but also worse with the second. And um, she's going. Oh, I'm, she said, you know, as as mothers to be are worried about all that. So and the old wives' tale is, don't worry about morning sickness. The baby will be fine. Yeah, so that's you know that is the the anecdotal answer. But she was, you know, chucking up and not eating very well. And, and I went, oh, you're in ketosis, aren't you? And she went, what do you mean, Dad? I said, again, you just test her, you know, we've got ketone strips and, you know, and she was in ketosis. 
And it just made me think, and I thought, okay, well, this is we've now got this wonderful experiment because everyone worries about babies in the mother yeah. being subjected to smoking, alcohol, drugs, and having this, you know, and, you know, the mother's got to have a clean, good life and because otherwise the baby's going to end up with problems. And I thought, actually, oh, we, we've got an experiment going on here. We have a baby which is in the mother and the mother's clearly in ketosis and it made me think, what are the, you know, has, has anyone actually looked at this? And as it turns out, if you wanted to d- design a study to look at the whether or not keto or a ketogenic, you know, nutritional ketosis, a state of ketosis was safe, then what you'd like to do is you'd want lots of big numbers, number one. You'd yeah. want to control it very carefully. You want to make the most, you want to find the most susceptible population you can possibly find which are going to be growing babies because the first trimester, second trimester is when everything develops. Then you want to follow them up really carefully and then you want to follow them once they're born, you know, and see what they're like for the first year or two. Now, surprisingly, right there, hidden in plain sight, are tens of thousands of results of a ketogenic, of nutritional ketosis. Yeah. But nobody's ever gone there. So, you know, I... I just started, okay, I'm going to start looking at the re- research here. And so therefore, it, you know, I think I end up with about, you know, when you combine, so essentially a meta-analysis, you know, 40,000, 50,000 cases of, of severe morning sickness, which means by definition, though, they're in ketosis. Yeah. Now, as it turns out, the more severe your morning sickness for women, for obviously you and myself, but for the, the more severe the morning sickness, the better the baby outcomes. Yeah. So they're more likely. So the old wife tale, wives' tale is true. They are more likely to not miscarry. They're more likely to go through the term. They're more likely to be of normal weight. They're more likely to have less congenital abnormalities. And they're more likely to, um, <clears throat> and they better, and they have uh, no growth problems, and they are likely to be intellectually smarter at the age of two. You know, we're not saying we're not we haven't been followed for twenty years. <clears throat> so I thought, oh my God, well, this is really interesting. I thought, actually, well, what's the opposite side of that? What's the opposite side of keto? Well, it's high carb, isn't it? So what are the results in gestational diabetes? So gestational diabetes tends to be more second and third trimester, but nonetheless, there it is, thousands and thousands, not tens of thousands, but thousands and thousands of, result, of results of what the mothers and babies who have gestational diabetes. And guess what? They're more likely to miscarry. They're more likely to have high and low birth weight babies. They're more likely to have birthing problems. Far more likely to have birth, uh, congenital abnormalities and other developmental ones like the cardiac ones. Yeah. And unfortunately, those children are also a lot more likely to have learning difficulties and are to be sicker. And we know there's some evidence to say that they're more likely to have diabetes and obesity in the longer term. So I realise I'm an orthopaedic surgeon. It's not a big talk. It's not a big presentation. But there it was. It was just fascinating to look at the results. And the old wives' tale is is true. Now, gestational diabetes is out of control. Mm. That is, you know, it's, um, 
One of the anaesthetists I work with, she was, had, uh, was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. She's pretty well, relatively low carb, but she ended up being diagnosed with it. She's slim, she wasn't overweight. No. Now, Belinda went along with her to the, as a support person <clears throat> to that instructional thing. And Belinda's take-home message, and I won't mention my colleague's name, but Belinda's take-home message was, they have no idea what's going on. It's out of control. They're saying to these mothers, if you don't eat three meals of carbohydrate per day next week, we're going to put you on insulin, which is just I mean, it's bonkers, isn't it? Absolutely bonkers. It's like saying... I'm an alcoholic. Oh, well, the way to control your DTs will just give you more alcohol. It's insane. It's unscientific. <laughs> you know, it's it's unfair. But, but, but it's really. it's what the textbooks say. I know. It's what the guidelines write. It's yeah. We've had the same experience in our own family with one of Karen's daughters when she was pregnant that they, you know, they wanted, you know, they do all these tests, they do an OGTT uh, in pregnant women and they were trying to, you know... Oral glucose tolerance test for yeah. those people who don't know what OGTD is. Yeah. yeah. And I'm an orthopedic surgeon, sorry, don't know these things. Of course not. Um, so it's it's a big, it's a great big drink of glucose, and then what you track is you track um, how the blood glucose responds. Um, if you're really clever, which no one does, you also track the insulin, but that's a whole other discussion. So they forced her to eat high carb in order to do this test. <laughs> you know... And we got her low carb, so she didn't have 20 atmospheres of insulin hanging around in the first place. Because most people, they've got all this insulin going on all the time in a full, the body's full-on attempt to control the sugar because they're eating such an excess of sugar. So the whole thing is, honestly, it's looking through the, to say it's looking through the wrong end of the telescope, I run out of metaphors, to be honest. The, the, yeah. the pyramid needs to be upended. Yeah. Um, just talk, talking about... That oral glucose tolerance test in pregnancy. If you are running low carb or keto through your pregnancy, you are more likely to be positive on an oral glucose tolerance test because you haven't been used to that exactly glucose for X number of months. So you can biohack your glucose tolerance test. Sorry, this is for those women who are actually. Engaging in low carb and keto and feeling good and feeling great and getting good control, you're more likely to have a false positive. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One way of biohacking that is to actually have some, heaven forbid, um, complex carbohydrates in the form of grains for two to three days beforehand, yeah. just so that you bump it up. Yeah. I'm not telling you to go out and have, you know, ice creams and, you know, that sort of thing. Some complex carbs which are going to increase your glycemic load and just bump your insulin up a little bit without really causing a dramatic spike and, you know, and affecting yeah. the pregnancy. Um, and, and our daughter did that. I said, She said, yeah. I've got to have this test. I said, will you just do me a favour and have some Eat some pizza carbs for, <laughs> uh, for the next... In your head, you're screaming, hours. aren't you? It's just, yeah, we, we did exactly the same. And, and, and she sailed through it and everyone, nobody batted an eyelid and so... But she, just in case she, she you know, um, had come through as a false positive. Because once you come through as a false positive, you know, tick, you've, you've created a number in the system yeah. and the system is after you. You know, you've got to turn up to this test, you've got to do that one. If you don't turn up to this test, then you are a neglectful mother. Yeah. Then you've got child services chasing you there. 
that opens up a whole other pand. You know, I don't know if you've heard of type one grit. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So um, uh, R.D. Um, Dykeman, <clears throat> who started that group, we were very proud that myself and um, uh, a few um, a few others supported them right at the beginning. But they were up against child services because they had their son unbelievably well controlled by low carb as an eight and nine, ten year old. Yeah. But child services were after them. And there have been multiple stories of that around the world. Parents that are taking control of their kids' out, you know, outcomes with poorly controlled type 1 diabetes. And the type 1 grit group, you know, to put low carb in context, those children, the people doing low carb, and type 1, which is the most poorly controlled one, are in the best 0.1% controlled type 1s in the world. Yeah. The type 1 grit group have been, you know, looked at, studied at, studied with, <clears throat> again, lots of N equals 1 studies. If you want to control your type 1s, go low carb. 100%. And actually, um, the next guest on my co- podcast is Dr Ian Lake. I, I, do you know oh, him? Yes. Right, I've um, I know Ian. I've, I've met Ian um, in uh, Zoe Harkham's backyard. <laughs> <laughs> he Bless came over the fence, you know, just you know, <laughs> an intruder. We brought out shotgun and sorted him out. Um, <clears throat> no, no, no. He, he was a guest. Yeah. Um, so for, for, and, the, uh, for the audience, Ian is a family doctor. He's a GP. He's type one diabetic and low carb, and he runs. A, he's got a fantastic um, website all about how the answer to type one diabetes is to be keto and very low carb. Um, so coming back, you talk. You talk to him about the law of small numbers from you know, and that yeah. low carb, low insulin, low spikes, low yeah. lows. Hundred percent. Yeah, it just works. But I kind of the point I guess we're trying to get to with this um, example of ketosis in pregnancy and in neonates is that is that you know either nature's two million years of evolution is completely stupid, or there's some logic that says well if babies in utero and breastfed babies are in ketosis. And that's human beings at their most vulnerable. Ketosis must be our natural state, certainly much of the time. I, I think rather than its natural state, <clears throat> it's its safe mode of operating. You know, when everything else is bad and you don't have access to food, you move into ketosis. And as a bonus, there are cleansing mechanisms. It's, it it clean, uh, cleans up our... Uh, and nuclei in the cells, the mitochondria. Yeah. Um, you know, all religions observe fasting for its benefits. Yeah. Uh, so you know, our, our religious her- heritage, doesn't matter if we're uh, Christian or Muslim or you know, Buddhist or whatever, have all observed periods of fasting for their benefits, periods of clarity, and uh, all we're doing is now applying some biochemistry to religion. Yeah. That was another talk I did, you know, the, the biochemistry of religion. Oh, I haven't seen Against, that one. We'll definitely have to link, link uh, it's only It's only a short one. And I, I presented it at, over in Cape Town originally as part of the talk. And then um, and I, I rang up um, this professor of biochemistry and um, who is, uh, describes me as his most enthusiastic mature age student. 
And um, I rang him up and said, oh, look, I've worked out the biochemistry of religion. This was a Friday afternoon. And he said, Fetke, you've lost the plot again, you know, <laughs> somewhat more expletives than that. I said, no, no, I've worked it out. And he, he's, he's, I said, I'll give you till Sunday to work out the biochemistry of religion. And he, um, anyway, I rang him back on the Sunday um, and uh, I said, I've got it. He said, have you worked that out? And I told him nutritional ketosis and he went, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. You win. Yeah. So, but it's, it's again this stuff that I, most of a lot I talk about. <clears throat> I call it hidden in plain sight. Yeah. You know, it's when you go looking for it, you find it. You know what? I, what I've talked about with pregnancy and and, and ketosis. Well, that we actually observed this forever. We've observed this with religious, you know, science. We've observed that adding more and more processed food into our lives hasn't improved our health. We're, and when we take it out, it improves our health. Mind yeah, you, it doesn't improve the health of, of, the, of those industries. It's you know, and, and I've been targeted for that. Completely. So uh, did you, I don't know if you follow uh, Michael Mosley at all, Dr. Michael Mosley and the original mm. wife. So what actually got me in, into all this actually was Michael Mosley's original program, uh, Eat Fast and Live Longer. And that was how he stumbled across the the five two diet. And he describes the American Dust Bowl and during the Great Depression when Americans were starving. And this is what you think happened to life expectancy in that mm. period of starvation? Will it increase by five years? Mm. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, my claim to fame is that um, <clears throat> we did a thing called the Saving Australia. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice, Crow. Sorry. Um, saving Australia diet, and then my patient was up against Michael Mosley's patient, and we were both up against one of a patient from the Dietitians Association. My patient beat Michael's patient, and both of our patients smashed the dietitians one. Yeah. So it, it was it was started at prime time TV, but the advertisers got started working out where we were heading with it, and it started going to later and later as it, as the results came through. And my my criticism of um, Michael and I, you know, we, it's I've been quite open about it. It's not because he's a bad guy. Is I say, okay, your, your eight hundred calorie diet for reversing diabetes works. You know, it's, it's very low carb. Yeah. What do, What do you do after eight weeks? No, I I agree with you. I've um, I feel that Michael's somewhat been taken in by all these things so that this in the uk we the, the great latest uh, innovation is these uh, nhs shakes oh, the really health good. system could abstract food into shakes and okay they're low carbs you you're starving hungry but you lose some weight but they're full of seed oil which they're no full of make. seed oil yeah. and um that that virtually all the studies um the investigators have a conflict of interest yeah so, financial. Yeah, I, I've also and, and again it works. It works because you've starved the people into a less diabetic state. Yeah. For eight weeks or twelve weeks. But you, what do you do after that? And you know, we're we're advocating for fresh local seasonal whole food. Hundred percent. Um yeah. Um, Someone's making a lot of money in that. They have. I know who it is. You know, we've, we've, you know, if you follow us on Twitter, 
and social media, you'll, you'll know exactly where, where we've pointed the finger there. Yeah. Because they're compromised. I'm sorry, you're compromised if you're actually, you know, and, and, the, and the, the product is not only just being people having financial interest in it, pyramid selling, and you've actually got, you know, the suppliers of, that, of those shakes actually, you know, involved in, in developing guidelines. 100%. So the thorny subject of religion came up and religion is kind of threaded through all of this and it's also threaded through your journey. Um, and there's a wonderful talk that I saw, I think you and Belinda were both there when you talked about Cain and Abel um, and the Garden of Eden diet and the Seventh-day Adventist, which is threaded through all of this. Um, and I've got to learn a lot about this, you know, through yourself and Belinda and uh, Nina Teichholz and so on. Um, just tell us a bit about how all that's been threaded through everything from what we eat, well, medical education to the guidelines, <laughs> to the serial it's industry. A, it's, it's, I think it's about seven well, hours of YouTube talks there now. You've there, just there is. Know, asked a, asked I am very out. sad, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a pharmacist. What do you expect? That's what we're supposed to be, you know. Oh, no, don't ask me to comment on that. <laughs> uh, look, religion in all of its forms is a guiding influence on society and how to behave, how to live, and not surprisingly, how to eat. And when you find out that, you know, and, and as I've, you, you know, you've asked me about my fruit talk, you know, you know, right at the beginning, the original sin was God said, don't eat the fruit because it's got fructose in it. It's high carb, you know, and it will drive behaviour. And fruit is, you know, it tastes great. But what we've come to recognise is the the fructose in particular, but also the sugar in it, the glucose in combination, drives behaviour. Yeah. So right from the word go, God said, don't eat the fruit. Right from the word go in Genesis, Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve, Cain kills Abel in a jealous rage. And what people haven't really looked at was what was actually, what was, what were they, what was the rage about? Yeah. So Cain was the farmer that gave an offering of fruit and grain and cereals to God. Abel was the shepherd who gave an offering of lamb, you know, according to whichever interpretation of the Bible, but an offering of, of, of meat to God. Yeah. And God favoured Cain, God favoured Abel, and then Cain killed him in a jealous rage in the field. So we've got right at the beginning there to say actually God says an animal-based diet is probably better for you than the plant-based one. And as we extrapolate that down the pathways, an animal-based diet is complete from a nutritional profile, yep. macronutrients, micronutrients, proteins, fats, and the small amount of carbs that you that come with it. A plant-based diet is nutrient-poor, carbohydrate-rich, energy-dense, and as we alluded to before, you just keep chasing your tail trying to find your micronutrient requirements. So the Bible was there. Um, you know, as we talked about fasting, it through all of these things and feasting and fasting and what animals should be eaten and in and out of cycles and you know, whether or not it's Hindu or Judaism, they all talk about how to eat. And it's interesting, a lot of that 
you know, some of those ideas of not eating this meat or that meat comes because of um, lack of refrigeration. Yeah. But, you know, if you get, and that's why they used to have a feast of an animal rather than try and store the animal. So, you know, you obviously you go through it with rose-coloured glasses when you start looking at religion again and then looking at it from, you know, a food aspect. And it's fine to have that. <clears throat> but the problem that we found is that the dietary guidelines, those hospital food guidelines, which are the same as the dietary guidelines, which are what is then determines what food is served in hospitals, nursing homes, schools, prisons and armed services, it literally has this massive effect of what food you should eat, has been developed by those with vested interests. Yeah. Now, again, if you've got an idea and you have an opinion, I, you know, I'm happy to have, listen to your opinion, but I'm really, really interested how you form that opinion. Yeah. So when we actually look at the biochemistry and the science of the guide, food guidelines, it's just nonsense. It is crap and it is killing my patients. Yeah. So therefore, how do we get to these guidelines? As it turns out, and this is to cut a whole lot into a short, is that the processed food industry has been right there at the beginning of developing the food guidelines for the Western world. And we can go back to October 23, 1917, when the American Dietetics Association was formed in the US. That was formed. The woman who started that and got that running was a woman called her name was Lena Cooper, who was working for, at the time and previously for John Harvey Kellogg's and the Kellogg's family and the Kellogg's consortium. And when you start looking back at it, Kellogg's, 101 cereal companies formed in a place called Battle Creek, Michigan, all with the common ground that they were formed from mostly members who were Seventh Day Adventists. Yeah. Now the Seventh Day Adventists are essentially vegan. Mm. They are now the second biggest educator in the Western world after the Catholic Church. They effectively own the cereal industry of the world, the soy industry, and they started the fake and alternate meat industries. And they've been writing the guidelines since October 1917, and the Australian, the UK, you know, the British, the Canadian, South African, New Zealand dietetic associations formed on the back of the American one. Lena Cooper wrote for the next first 40 years the textbooks, which then formed the dietetic education for the Western world. She was also the start, she was the first dietitian appointed by the US military to then determine, you know, um, food for the forces. But you've got to realise, okay, that'd be fine, except that they're vegan. And they actually are promoting their cereal and grains and that whole food pyramid of that nine, you know, nine, you know, varies from six to 11 servings of grains at the bottom of the food pyramid. Right through to the recommendations of vegetarianism and veganism actually being useful. Yeah. And right, th right through to the most recent 2021, 2020-21 guidelines that came out of the US, the four people that were actually looking at the meat aspect, you know, or the saturated fat, and it's, in other terms, I'm looking at meat. Um, uh, three, uh, one was with, uh, from the processed food industry, the other three were vegan, vegetarian, and one of them was Seventh-day Adventist, yeah. who's, you know, incredibly well-written. That's fine. You can have your opinion, but you shouldn't be forcing your religious, yeah. non-scientific beliefs 
upon us. Now, everything I've talked about in Valinda's work has actually been acknowledged by the Adventist Church themselves. She's been contacted by past members, current members. Some of the most high, the highest people within the Adventist Church have actually acknowledged that Belinda's work is actually accurate. Mm. And she's now quoted in those articles as actually knowing, you know, they reference her, her work about her knowing. So they have actively, and they're quite open about it, manipulated the dietary guidelines to move us away from animal-based produce towards plant-based produce. And I'm sorry, but here it is. They, the, the material that they're making up is fabricated. The research is done with a religious purpose. Yeah. We've got the documents, 1950s here. We are now going to do research to prove the writings of Ellen G. White. We're going to, to prove what she said, that veganism is a good idea. And then those studies, which are actually done by the, the vegan processed food industry, then get requoted over and over and over and over. And that's led me down the environmental pathway as well to start looking at that because the whole thing that animal plant-based produce is infinitely better for the planet than animal-based produce, so it's, again, it's just... I'm, I'm sick and tired of kicking over houses of cars, Grant. You know, it, it's like when I embarked <laughs> on this you, journey... Gary, we need you. <laughs> you know, but whether or not, you know, you just question hospital food. Oh, yeah. this is a frigging, frigging house of cards. Yeah. Okay, look, let's look at sugar. Let's look at the metabolism. Hang on, this is really obvious. We shouldn't be having so much sugar. You know, that seems, sounds really simple now, but I can tell you 12 years ago people looked as though I'd come from the other side of the, of the moon. Yeah. And, you know, and when you start, but again, it's fine for us to have these opinions, <clears throat> but we need to work out how we develop them. And then that's when you start looking at religion, October 1917, 1910, which has a direct you know, effect on 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 our, on our lives, is that the Flexner report came out in the US. It was commissioned by Andrew Carnegie and Rockefeller. So steel and oil, the birth of the pharmaceutical industry to get rid of holistic healthcare. Yeah. So that so therefore if that whole preventative health message was played down. Yeah. And the operate or to medicate pathways were pushed up. Absolutely. And those foundations then determined the research facilities for the next 100 years out of the US, those models, the, the, the hospital model, the massive hospital model, yeah. was based on the Battle Creek, Michigan one, which was actually started by John Harvey Kellogg. Yeah. So you throw the Kelloggs together with the Rockefellers and the, and the Carnegie's, our entire medical education and nutritional education was screwed up in that 10-year period. Yeah. It then became the writings in the textbooks and then I call that generational education. Yeah. So that you don't argue with your teachers because they must know. But they don't argue with their teachers because they must know. Yeah. But how did they get there? And that's the fascinating thing. And, you know, you, you, you know we demonise Ansel Keys and a whole lot of this, but how did he get to those ideas? And a little-known effect, you know, I don't know if you know about Ansel Keys, that he did most of his primary work with the starvation diet. Yeah. Okay, remember, and that's how he did his seminal work, which gave him the, the prominence. Yeah. Who who, were, who did he do those experiments on? It was a lot of work on prisoners, wasn't it? 
Well, no, they were the conscientious objectors to oh, the Second right. World War. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, who were the conscientious objectors? You're going to tell me it's the Seventh Day Adventist. Seventh Day Adventist. <laughs> do not draw arms upon fellow man. Yeah. So he had this okay. massive, you know, we, do, we can't find those records. But that is, you look at conscientious objection, Second yeah. World War. Um, uh, there was a movie recently, a couple of years ago, um, uh, about uh, uh, <clears throat> an army um, medic who saved a lot of um, uh, a lot of soldiers by his efforts. He was Seventh Day Adventist. So the conscientious objectors, the health people within the armed forces, they they were the so Ansel Keys <clears throat> would have met and had been affected by a whole lot of people who were quite happy to be experimented on mm. for his because that was their war effort. Yeah, okay. But they were mm. vegan, vegetarian, Seventh-day Adventists with a deep spiritual thing. So, I'm, you know, just how did he get to that idea that meat was bad? I mean, I don't know. We can't go back. Ansel Keys is dead, you know, as we alluded to. He's tried to, you know, turn around some of his ideas, you know, in his latter years. Mm. But I actually think Ansel Keys was a product of his environment, remembering that the hospital, sorry, the, the nutritional industry, the nutritional educational industry was being set up by the processed food industry when he would have been medical student, young man going through that whole thing. So we got the whole processed food industry really hammering their anti-meat message at that point in time because they didn't know any better. I, it's, I, I don't know the answer, but it, it's just... I, you know, Ansel Keys gets hammered, but gosh, he was educated by the environment around him. And I think that's why we ended up in this paradigm of big food and big farmer. Um, and that's why I've ended up calling myself the pharmacist that gave up drugs. Because I've mm. just realised, you know, the drugs are of very little benefit in most people. And if you can get them on the right lifestyle, they don't need the drugs. But of course, the drug industry is never going to do a clinical trial showing that you don't need drugs. And the food industry is never going to encourage people to eat less or eat real food. If you put the right fuel in your car, it doesn't need a lot of servicing. Yep. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. And people, make, we pay more attention to what fuel we put in our cars. Yeah. And how much it costs and not costs. <clears throat> we'll pay for good quality fuel because we don't want problems with our cars. Well, it's just... As I say to people, just spend the time preparing food. We're very fortunate here in Tasmania. We've got fabulous access to fresh local seasonal whole food. We've got our vegetable garden. I've got sheep out there. If I get really desperate, I've got a few wallabies floating around. And, As you but do. they don't float. Sorry. Okay. They, they hop. Okay. All right. We, we don't get a lot of those in the UK. We get some urban foxes. Will that do? <laughs> yeah. They, they're a bit, um, you need probably a shotgun for those, right? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So um, I, I, there are so many things that we could have talked about. We've only scratched the surface of the numerous themes that, you know, that you've tackled. And, you know, like all the people I interview on this channel, I really have to sort of, I, I feel humbled uh, when I read what you guys have done and the fact that you're prepared to spend some time with me. So it's, it's hugely appreciated. Just um, as we sort of segue towards the end, 
how do you see the future? So you've been through all this personal pain and we've only touched on some of it. Um, you've uncovered all this corruption. Um, where do you think we're heading? At the end of the day, have you got an optimism about the future that the truth will out? Or do you think that the two huge paradigms of big food and big pharma are winning the battle and, and it's all hopeless? I think if you are given the right information, you can make decisions for yourself. <clears throat> if you are privileged enough to then be in a situation where you can actually get access to fresh food <clears throat> and, high, and, and avoid the ultra-processed food, then you should embrace that. <clears throat> I'm well aware that there are multiple areas on the planet <clears throat> that don't have access to that information. And even if they did, they don't have access to that good food. So I'm in a privileged position. And if you're in a privileged position, which means you're in Western society and you're not being bombed and you're not, you know, caught up with famine and political, you know, without going down all those paths, then it's your it's your duty to your fellow man to make the most of that. Yeah. And if you don't, that's called selfish. So if you want to go along and, and, and if you want to continue to fund big food, big pharma, then that's what you're going to do. Yeah. I have a problem with that. So, again, if you're going to wait for the governments who are influenced by the dollar and the advertising, if you're going to wait for the guidelines to change, you're going to be waiting a long time. Yeah. But you, are, you can make that decision today about what you are going to do. Now, um, I... Um, when the sugar stuff started here in Australia, uh, Sarah Wilson brought out a book called I Quit Sugar. And I went to the two major corporates, uh, Coles and Woolworths, which are the big food suppliers yep. here, and I wrote to both of them saying, I'd like to have a meeting. You know, I realise that's arrogant and out there, right? There's, yeah. Anyway, one of them actually wrote back and said, yeah, we'd like to have a meeting with you. So I said, okay. I know for a fact that eight, Sarah Wilson has sold 80,000 books called I Quit Sugar here in the last three weeks. That's wow. 80,000 families which are going to be changing their eating habits at your stores. I want you to know that I've already noted you've moved Stevia from this shelf to that one. Yeah. I'm not, not agreeing with Stevia, but I'm just sort of, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a whole, whole that, guess who started the Stevia industry? Yeah. 11th Day Adventists, okay. They, they, they just sold it all off about a year ago, but they started it all. So... And the corporates, and I said, and I know that you're shrinking your fruit juice section. Yeah. You're not going to sh shrink your, your soft drink section. but you, you, So when I started this process, and I'll go back, it's 12 years, when, we, when everyone thought that there was, was completely out of left field to start talking about the perils of sugar. The dentists have been talking about it for 50 years and started yeah. the naturopaths, but to actually become a mainstream topic yeah. was unheard of. I was playing golf today because that's what I can do, you know. So I played golf with a guy and I said, you talk, you heard about keto? And he said, yeah, everyone knows about keto. And I said, whoa, hmm. let's take you back five years. Most people would never heard about the word keto. Yeah. Ten years ago, I didn't even know what keto was. Same. Yeah. So the fact that, the, no, you know, parents are raising their kids and, you know, a lot of them are saying you can't have that much sugar. The understanding of the word keto, the understanding of low-carb, in diabetes management, is now becoming commonplace. 
So I can talk to someone on the golf course about it. And he was a finance person. Yeah. We're, we're winning. And because I've got the internal documents from the cereal industry back in 2014 saying cereal sales are down in Australia because of the concepts of low-carb paleo. Yeah. And these eight people are to be targeted. So in 2014, right at the beginning of all this, they're starting to feel the pain. Yeah. So the cereal industry is must be feeling the pain because it's got it on their internal documents. So, you know, we, we've got them on sugar. We've yeah. got them on carbs. Yeah. So what's their last bastion of defence? The planet. No, fibre. Oh, fibre, okay. Yeah. You, you keep hearing about the benefits of breakfast cereals for fibre. Yeah. And, you know, there, and there's a whole other topic about whether or not fibre is good or bad for you. But what I'm sort of saying is we, we, we're pushing the processed food industry into a corner. Yeah. The consumer's doing that. They're, they're never going to go out of business. But don't forget that you as the consumer have the ability to support your local farmer. Yeah. You've got the ability to decentralised food back to community. You've got that ability with your buying power. Never underestimate it. Even if you just move ten percent of your budget towards the local farmer, that's 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 progress. So, am I optimistic? I am for those that have the ability and the option to choose it. The rest of the world, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm uh, I'm getting a bit old and pragmatic <laughs> about that. But I'm, I think if you if you're going to eat well. And you can look after your land in a holistic fashion and and that means looking after, you know, erosion and, and considering the environment and all of that. I think there is a future there. Is it going to be at 7 billion people on the planet or is it going to be at 10 billion or 2 billion? I don't know the answer to that and that will be well past me. But I'd like to think that my grandchildren are going to be armed with the tools to go forward with the information with their grandfather, grandmother, said, and they'll go back and go, hey, I, I'm very proud of my grand, grandparents. Um, I didn't find out a lot about them until only a few years ago um, and what they did standing up against the, the Nazi regime way back. But um, isn't it a great concept where your actual children and your grandchildren think that you're cool? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and so we're we're giving a giving it a crack. Are we going to succeed? No, but I'm no longer one voice. We're no longer just a husband and wife. There are now thousands of people that are starting to run, you know, if not millions. I think there are millions of people, you know, that are on, on board with it now. And you compare that to, do you know Rod Taylor? You know Rod? No, no. So Rod started low carb down under, and the whole. Millions of viewings on YouTube and all that. Oh, sort that of I, yeah, I know low carb down under. Karen yeah. and I were all intending to come. Of course, then COVID put paid to it, but we definitely will at some point. Oh, there's a new meeting in May in, in Sydney. Yeah, May fourteenth. Paul Mason just rang me about it the other day. Yeah, but um, it's free plug, Paul. There you are. Okay, and um, but um, I said to Rod, um, we're in a taxi going from A to B, and I said, you know. Another 20 or 30 years, Rod, that people will never remember. Rod Taylor, Gary Fetke, Peter Bruckner, you know. Yeah. Um, but just remember what, you know, what what got started here. Absolutely. And, and um, 
that's uh, that's all. That, this is. We, we, I know it doesn't. Nobody believes this, but we're actually doing it because we think it's important. Hundred percent. And like you said, I, I, was it you that can um, coin this expression that once you've seen it, you can't unsee it? I, I know. Well, I I'll, I'll take. I'll take the credit for that. But it gets requited around the time, but nonetheless, I, I quote I, it all the time, Gary. I quote it all the time. But, but that, that's it. You know, I, I can't. You know, as I say, when I've got patients that come in the. Unfortunately, those people with end-stage diabetes and amputations, to be fair, their brains aren't often functioning well enough to turn it around. Yeah. Their family's brains are, and we can have a go at the next generation. Yeah. But literally, even people with end-stage diabetes and foot ulcers that are not healing who go low-carb and get control of their diabetes stave off that amputation for months, if not forever. I've seen ki- people with kidney disease as a result of their diabetes in- improve, not just hold it at bay, but actually improve. And, you know, this stuff is just mind-blowing. It's, you know, you're told this can't happen. You're told that the Diabetes Association still are pushing the barrow of this is a chronic progressive disease. That is complete and utter BS. Yeah. It needs to be just smashed down because for those people given the right information, the right what Belinda will call SAM, support, accountability and motivation, they've got the ability to, to, to take back control. But don't wait for the government to advise you on that. Brilliant, Gary. I think that's a, an uplifting uh, a note on which, which to finish. Um, and I just... And, you talk, and, I, and I'm not allowed to talk about the ashes. <laughs> <laughs> That's for our next podcast. Um, yeah, there are certain things that, as I said, I, I, I mentioned the war once or twice, but I think I got away with it. We're just not going to yes, get yeah. there. <laughs> so much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I, I know we've only touched on 10% of, 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 of the subjects that you've covered and, and, and some of those not in any great detail. Probably, probably only about... <laughs> Two or three percent. Yeah, get, go and get get Belinda to come and have a chat to you. I would love to. So uh, I'm so pleased that you volunteered her in that way. It would be an absolute delight if we could have have her on or, or both of you on at some point in the future. So um, thank you so much for your time. It's really appreciated. No, it's a pleasure. Hope all goes well. We're going to catch up in face to face sooner or later. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to find out more, join our Wellness and Pro Longevity Facebook group. Don't forget to subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode and maybe share to friends and family who might benefit. Finally, if you think you might need help with diabetes, heart disease or any of the other diseases we discuss, then book a free consultation with Graham. There's absolutely no charge for this and we would never put you under any pressure. What do you have to lose? Bye for now and see you for the next episode.